Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Melinda Decker, Chief Commercial Officer of MIMI. MIMI has been laser-focused on autoimmune diseases and only recently launched the COVID long-haul program, which is helping individuals who were previously diagnosed with COVID and experience ongoing symptoms that often resemble the health issues seen in people with chronic autoimmune diseases. In this episode, I'm excited to speak with one of the earliest trailblazers, Chris Bergstrom, president of Amalgam Rx. I actually had to look up Amalgam, which according to Google, means a mixture or a blend. Well, indeed, Amalgam is a new blend of DTX. One would even say it's not a DTX. That one would be Chris himself. But before we dive in, I met Chris in LA a few years back in a venture building pitch with BCG. Chris's experience in life sciences and trailblazing the DTX space at WellDoc brought a huge value to that discussion, and I was impressed by his succinct way of boiling down complex messages. And now we jump to my conversation with Chris. I'm here with Chris Bergstrom, president of Algamum Rx, and you will probably correct me on pronunciation of the company. I know it's pretty easy, but you know I was born outside of US, so maybe that's the challenge. So give us a little bit about yourself, because we want our listeners to get to know the trailblazers behind the voice of the podcast. So welcome. Yeah, Eugene, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Wish we were in Barcelona. It's my favorite city. By the way, have you ever seen a beach restaurant club called Balulu up north in Maturo? Not yet, but I'm taking this down as a recommendation now. Yeah, I'm taking you there sometime soon, as soon as we start traveling again. All right. Fantastic. So it's been an interesting journey. You know, I've been in healthcare my whole career. When I left college, I literally said the only industry I don't want to go into is healthcare. I based that on not enjoying biology class. Accidentally, I ended up in it and it's been just a phenomenal ride. And I had no idea, you know, the difference we could make in so many ways. Long, arduous journey for each of those, but we can. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I was doing kind of classic life sciences, pharma, med tech diagnostics, and most often like a brand manager. And, you know, so essentially I'm pushing my product. Hey, buy this product. Don't buy that product. I had the opportunity around 2006 to do a true voice of the customer project where we went out, white space, not looking for anything, just trying to understand what we were missing, uh, what needs were needing to be solved that hadn't been. Interviewed almost 200 stakeholders across US and Europe, almost all in person. So doctors, patients, nurses, parents, kids, anyone in the ecosystem. And we synthesized all that information. It was really amazing. This is all we talk about today in 2021, but in 2006, it just was not. So how do we get the right data to the right people at the right place at the right time? More importantly, how do we turn the data into information, knowledge, actions, and outcomes? And all I knew was that that was something that didn't really exist as far as I knew in healthcare, certainly in any good way, that we were going to need to pull in technologies that we didn't normally use, such as wireless technology, big data science. You know, We didn't even use the term big data back then. And that began a journey for me. So that changed my career. From that perspective, because we are in a DTX podcast, what was your entry point? And I know you've spent some earlier days at WellDoc, and I'll have some more deeper, but I think, you know, part of that, like what drove you to the DTX industry? And I guess at the time it wasn't even called DTX industry, right? So. Right. Yeah, we didn't know what to call it. I remember writing press releases. Do we call this e-health? What do we call it? You know, I think it was a combination of, okay, understanding that need and saying, well, somehow we need to have digital that helps patients 
coming from my life sciences background, I brought two views to the table, right or wrong. One, that providers were really important. It had to be part of the equation too. Two, a little bit of a life sciences business model, again, right or wrong. And in the journey of trying to figure out how to solve this problem, I met the founders of WellDoc, was blown away by the fact that they had shown that software could you know, be as powerful as a drug. Ayer, who I know you know and has been on the podcast before, he was actually my consultant to help me understand the wireless technology. And he and I became so enamored with WellDoc, we couldn't stay away and we jumped in head over heels. And then, wow, what a journey, being on the frontier, getting all the arrows in your back and just having fun. Good thing we didn't know what we didn't know. People said, this will never work. You won't get FDA clearance. No one will use it. You won't get it paid for. Each of those comments was about a two-year process to solve for. And not completely linearly, luckily, but not that far off. I'll give you an example. So we needed a code for reimbursement. And I filed all the appropriate documentation with the FDA to get a code as you would with, say, a drug. Got nothing. Crickets. I went down, got my car, drove to D.C., went to Senator McCluskey's office. She was in charge of the FDA at the time and explained what was going on. Luckily, a week later, we had our code. I mean, these are just kind of the entrepreneurial things you have to do. Another example, we went to a very large national pair and explained the product. And they said, oh, okay, this sounds like it'd make a lot of sense. We'll go ahead and put it on formulary. And we're like, yeah, this is great. Next day they call me. We don't see any prescriptions. So this isn't even worth our time and hassle to put it on formulary. It becomes this chicken and egg. So that was part of the journey. But then by October 1st, 2014, we had our first script go through and be billed and paid. And it was a fun, groundbreaking time. Yeah. And I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, as an entrepreneur getting in the car, you know, have enough cojones since I'm here in Barcelona, driving to a center's office, right? Or a representative's office and asking these questions. And to me, it's interesting because you didn't go into the detail of sort of your own backgrounds from, I'll call it logos perspective, but I know you spent time at a larger companies as well, like BCG. I think this is when we met for the first time. But you just contrasted getting in the car and trying to get your code. So maybe you can contrast for our listeners driving things as an entrepreneur versus working either with corporates or as an intrapreneur. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. A lot of it's about timing. So in an entrepreneurial setting, you can control your own timing. What, how much risk do we want to take and how fast do we want to go? In a big company, their risk profile has generally been established. It varies by company, but you have to work within that risk profile. And that's usually very driven by timing. So in 2006, the medical company I was working in, they were too averse and wisely so to want to get into this. So we said, oh, I'll go do it outside. When I was at BCG, there was two things. It was just such an awesome part of the journey that I couldn't get, you know, say in my own company. One, the ability to influence the decision makers in healthcare. So on a weekly basis, I'm meeting with the CEOs of the world's largest healthcare companies, being able to talk through with them, you know, where we see things going and how their role could be. And when I look back, so I was there 2015, 2020, 2015, like, why is Chris in the room? 2016, okay, I know you need to be here. I don't know why, but I'm really ready to listen. 2017, okay, I've been appointed a vice president. He's got a small budget. Can you work with him or her to figure out what this is all about, what it means to us? 2018, okay, we have a larger team, a bigger budget. We're going to try a few things internally, externally. 2019, we realized we failed at a bunch of stuff. What can we learn? 2020, we're back out the door with those learnings. And here we are in 2021. And that's a really normal 
progression of what can happen. Also in a big company, you know, like a BCG, I can grab 50 people, 100 people within 48 hours and apply them to a project. And these are some of the most talented people in the world. So that's cool. But being a, in the entrepreneurial seat, as you know, driving your own destiny, hiring your, you know, your own favorite people, spending on what you want to spend, having your focus. And I also think important, at least compared to say like a BCG, you can build your own IP. And in the case of Amalgam, we're lending that IP out to others, which is a sustainable enabler of things like scale. And, and so that's exciting. It's not just a labor driven business. I just wish we can kind of combine it because that five-year journey of, well, let's do this. You know, I think that's like a five-week journey <laughs> in a startup, like, let's try this. But then I would love to just scale on demand, right? So, but anyway, that's a whole other podcast probably in its own. You know, it's one thing that we are doing. We have a bit of a startup full of grownups, uh, I say. So we've done big stuff. We've done little stuff and hopefully bringing those best practices together under our roof and bringing the best of big companies and small companies together. So with that experience, maybe we can do something. You know, that's a perfect segue, right? Into Amalgam, right? Amalgam. Amalgam. Okay. Now that for the listeners, we got it straight. So obviously you've known the founders, you've built company before with them. They've been at it now for about what, five years or so, if I'm not mistaken, but you'll correct me. A, maybe give a little bit of who you guys are and what took you so long to join Ryan and team. So one, I was having fun at BCG for the reasons I mentioned, but I always had the itch to get back to something when I, what I was personally looking for is is a company that was aligned to my passion, which is to prove to the world that digital health could work. Then once I was part of that process, it's been for the last seven years, scaling digital health. How do we help the world scale? And Amalgam was very aligned to that vision. I waited, maybe hedging my bet until I thought that they had the pieces of the puzzle and the capability to actually deliver on that vision. And when that happened, it made sense and I couldn't stay away and jumped in. What we're focused on, so our vision is to scale digital health. We know we can't do that alone. So a lot of it is how do we bring parties together in ways that they maybe weren't able to do before? How do we bring providers and life sciences companies together? Oftentimes there's good and bad and structural reasons why they challenges working together. But most things in healthcare that have scaled involve life sciences and involve providers. So we're very passionate about that. We think we can support that with some assets that we have. So we bring real world evidence to the table. We have billions and billions of real time, real world evidence data points, which allows a lot of things to be unlocked retrospectively, prospectively, empowering other products. We have a product tech stack that we can allow other people to build great products. We can build those ourselves for them. We know how to integrate and we have the tools and capabilities and assets to integrate it into the provider workflow. We can talk more about that. And then we do all of this generally in a very secure, compliant, regulatory QMS way so that we have the flexibility if we need to be regulated, we can be. So, so that's kind of who we are, what we're passionate about, what we're doing. We've been pretty quiet, so not a lot of people know about us. I think they'd be surprised what all we're doing. I can't wait to continue peeling that onion, right, in this discussion, because yes, at a peripheral, I've been watching you guys, but then I think it would help to make sense out of, and maybe we'll start with the originating team, let's put it that way, because I'm sure you've been in the conversations from the beginning. Can we talk a little bit about kind of what's DTX business? What was the original hypothesis of the company, right? Business hypothesis, and then how it evolved. And I'm sure we'll get into more discussions on this. It was a bit of a two-step. So number one, how do we build a company that's self-funded almost from the beginning? 
so that we have the flexibility to move where we believe and we're passionate about. And so the company was able to do that. And they were able to do that by saying, well, what are we, you know, the founders and some of the initial team very good at? And that was building digital therapies. And so they said, can we build a business almost immediately based on a decade of experience building digital therapies? And they were able to do so. Last four going on five years, we've grown top line revenues, triple digits, been able to control our own destiny, just funded with friends and family originally and now self-funded. So that's been great. What it allowed us to do was build capabilities, build a team, have a sure footing, But we were looking, what is that thing around the corner? Because that's what really gets us out of bed. In our past life, it was, oh, digital therapies and what was possible. What is now the thing that gets us out of bed? And we began to say, okay, it's definitely how do we help people scale? And then it became, well, how do we help others do that? Because if we just try and scale our own solutions, you know, even if we scaled 10 or 20 of them, that doesn't change the world. So it's really not a pivot, but kind of the progression of where the company started and where we are today. So here's the guy that for at least 10 years, almost every day, I told someone, at least my opinion and view of what a digital therapy was, helping define this term that when we started, there was no term for it. Luckily, I wasn't the only one, but there was very, very few people for many years that were doing this. I thought it was important because you have to get your head around it to allow it to become something. I think it's time to retire the term digital therapy. To me, it's like when you had a teenager, right? So I had this teenager, this DTX, and we're now 15 years old. It's time to let them go and define who they are. And, you know, they're going to be, sometimes they're going to be a soccer player. Sometimes they're going to be a student, a business person, a friend. And that's what we're beginning to see in digital, which is that the lines are blurring, the things are changing rapidly. We know it works. We don't need to call it a certain thing. We need to define what value we're solving for. And the value use case will be A, and then it'll be B, and then it'll be C. And we will bring a variety of evolving digital solutions and non-digital solutions to solve that. So I think it's time to define value and a little less on what it is. So maybe my two cents on it, I think we've been, you know, for the longest time I've been saying, you know, every sort of new sub industry or industry needs some kind of buzzwords, right? It's been digital health, which I think everything and and their mothers and fathers and grandmothers got packed into it. And then, you know, a subset of it, well, you know, clinically validated, evidence-based. I mean, we don't need to go through the, what we've already discussed. It's a digital therapeutic. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a therapeutic. And just because it's digital means almost to a certain extent, nothing. So I'm a little bit on the same page and funny enough, I saw a tweet, I think it was from Vishal Gulati, said, you know, who cares what it's called? As long as it has outcomes and it's making money for people, I don't think at that point, anybody's going to care what it's actually called. So echoing some of those discussions, absolutely. And it's a little bit because I think you sort of get bundled into this digital therapeutic as a company. And I've noticed on your website, like I have to really scroll down and, you know, I haven't checked it in a couple of days. It doesn't even say DTX, right? You kind of say you're a SAMD platform company, a patient support company. I know you have a pipeline of your own digital therapeutics that you guys were pursuing. So maybe you can talk a little bit about then as a commercial lead and previously now the president of the company, talk about the DTX being retired in your case and how you guys are approaching the market. Yeah. And you're making me feel guilty. I mean, the website is months out of date of who we are and what we're doing and what we need to communicate. You know, it's classic case of we're, we're helping others and probably should focus a little time on our own website and communication. But, you know, most of the dialogue isn't happening with people coming to the website. It's about people that we're working with and helping. And we can do these things, patient support programs, digital therapies. We do do them. 
what we're really focused on is bringing our assets of real world evidence, the building blocks of building products and being able to integrate it in the workflow like no one else has ever done and to do so within a secure, regulated, if necessary, environment. And to allow, it could be a startup, it could be a pharma company, it could be a payer, it could be Apple, whomever we can help to do that. In many cases, within conjunction of fitting into the provider workflow, not always, but oftentimes that's something that we think is important to scale. So when we get back to updating the website, it'll communicate something more along those lines. But, you know, while it's not update, I think what you just described, yes, there's digital therapies and you helping others. But I think, again, as a mission of the company, it's also evolved, which is interesting to see. I'm trying to demystify to our listeners what is a digital therapeutic. And I know we just had this whole discussion, but in the context of Amalgam, Maybe you can talk about what is that experience for the, I'll say, end user. And to me, what it sounds like when you describe the end user could be a multitude of stakeholders. So unlike a DTX product that gets marketed, its own channels, maybe you can just describe who are your actual quote unquote end users and what does that experience look like? Our end users are, they range pretty broadly. They can be patients. We have millions of patients benefiting from our products. They can be providers. They can be B2B people. It could be people running clinical trials. It could be brand team managers. So we're able to have all of them as the end user. It depends on the tools. So we have a tech stack that's designed to be extensible across different diseases and use cases. There's features that face off to the patient, that face off to the provider, that face off to enterprise business intelligence tools. We've designed it to be able to scale globally. So when we go from one country to the next, literally, you know, even non-technology engineers like myself, we can go in and click a toggle switch. Okay, we're going from Portuguese to French, which is super cool. And that's just kind of us bringing our history uh, from the past saying, how can we do this better at scale? I also think that things are being done not only too slow and sometimes at lower quality, but at too high of a price. I mean, think of Amazon. You know, they brought parties together. They brought assets to help people enable the scale of commerce, but they really took margin out of everything. And I think that there's a huge opportunity to do that. So how do we help people accomplish all of this at a, I think cheaper is the wrong word, but higher value and, and not such high margins that where we can take that margin, we can do more. A predictable and fair price. I think the predictable part to me always matters, but. You can think of use cases that range from how do I help a patient manage their life better, kind of your classic digital therapy? How do we allow providers to make clinical decisions? We're firing off maybe hundreds of thousands of clinical decision support messages to providers every single day. That's exciting. On a clinical trial, how do we help them uncover insights? How do we help them uh, identify patients that should be in trials? How do we help them recruit them, e-consent them, stay adherent in the trial? How do we create algorithms for new categories that have never existed before in a therapeutic area where we can identify the algorithm so that you know we can publish that in the literature, we can let a physician know, medical society, this is the algorithm that best identifies the patients that are most appropriate for these therapies at that moment in time. And I think we're able to do that in a way that's faster using real world evidence in ways that weren't possible in the past. Amazing. And maybe I'll just touch on because I think part of it is you also had, you know, and similar, I mean, you mentioned you come from life sciences, you guys had your own pipeline kind of pre-FDA in immunology and oncology and hypertension, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit of how that plays into the fuller picture as well? Well, one thing that we see is 
that some people are scaling horizontally. I think there's a lot of digital therapy companies that are saying, we did a disease, now we're doing another disease, now we're doing another disease. I think where that evolves to is, you know, we eventually say, okay, Eugene, you have psoriasis and you have diabetes, and it's quickly configured on the back end into a comorbid solution for you. We're not there yet, but at least we're advancing towards enabling others to be able to do that. So some are doing this horizontally. We're working a little more vertically on the scale. So how do we build out capabilities that allow people to do this horizontal scale? How do we build out capabilities that allow people to integrate into the clinical workflow? How do we allow capabilities for people to do their horizontal thing in a supercharged way so we're able to take data from the EMR and put it into their solution and vice versa? So that we're really looking at this vertical and a lot of people are going horizontal, so it should be a nice kind of marriage. Super interesting. And actually a little bit of that on that same note, right? Because I, I'm sure you've been reading, you know, Brian's exits and outcomes and, you know, a lot of these discussions go between sort of PDT as a prescription DTX, kind of, I'll say versus, but not necessarily versus disease management 2.0, right? You mentioned companies that start with a particular vertical and, and keep moving and enhancing. Where's your head in thinking about prescription digital therapeutic? Again, not versus, but in contrast with disease management 2.0, you alluded to things are changing and the lines of learning. And I'll put the tertiary piece of digital therapeutic just disappear as a term. So <laughs> that's your own. One of my big ahas from 2020 that, you know, I don't know if others had figured this out for a long time, but but I, I look back, I'm like, how did I miss this? We know that the world went from like 7% telemedicine to 70% telemedicine in April and May. And I look back and I realized that the world had to go through telemedicine sequentially, not in parallel to like digital therapies and other things like that in order to get to these other things that many of us are passionate about and believe are higher value. And the reason I say that, I go back, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, human behavior. I've been studying this in the sales process. We, we have it in our products. I should have known. Uh, you're a clinician. Many of them have to take the first step, which is, here's what I do every day. I'm just going to do that through a window. But I'm really doing the same thing. It's a, a very progressive step that when they were forced to do, they found was actually not so challenging. Kind of a story aside, I'm usually pretty healthy and don't have to use healthcare, knock on wood. So that's been wonderful. As soon as the pandemic comes, I stop traveling. I stop, you know, having business dinners every night and I try and cook at home. Start a big kitchen fire. Get <laughs> second degree burns all over my hand and my arm. All of a sudden, and, and this is at the moment in time, like in late March, early April, where, you know, no one's going to the ER. They're saying, stay away, stay away. And so I did telemedicine with Hopkins. And, you know, this is for burns. Like most of us would have thought telemedicine is like mental health, those kind of things. They treated my burns through the window. So that was so cool. And I think it's these ahas. But when you're a provider and you go, okay, that was cool. I did what I did. Maybe I give the patient a pamphlet or a sample. I, I, you know, I don't just send them out the door with nothing. You begin to ask the question, what else? And I think that's where you know, this intersection of whatever you want to call them begin to say, okay, we can now all work together. There's telemedicine, then you might prescribe a digital therapy right after that's kind of occurred. So to me, that was super exciting. I didn't realize we had to go through that. I'm glad we did it in less than a year. 
Yeah, no, listen, absolutely, right? I mean, there have been statements like, you know, 10 decades in 10 days and things like that. And maybe I'll try to put some words in your mouth, but you don't really see a differentiation in the sense that it's the right tool or the right process or the right thing for the right patient. And it's less about a PDT or a disease management 2.0. It's what's needed at the time for the end consumer. Yes. And that's the challenge. So I 100% agree. And then the magic is, how do you actually implement getting the right tool in the right way and the right resource at the right time? And I come from a marketing background. I remember kind of my first marketing mentor saying, it's all about the marketing mix. Are you going to spend your money on, you know, seeing doctors, retailers, consumers, and Chris, there's no magic answer, but you want to be able to do it better than your competition. That's what we have to do here. We have to deliver care in the right way at the right time. And we're going to get better and better at it, but there'll never be perfection, but hopefully choices. Since we're on that same topic, I think, you know, you come and, you know, my background as well in pharma, and I always sort of have this discussion with the digital therapeutic trailblazers around does a DTX, right? And so maybe, you know, a more traditional DTX, if we can call it that these days already, that knows the end consumer experience, does that swallow a pill inside, which is, you know, the core product of pharma? Or does pharma look at it and say, well, you know what, this is actually pretty interesting now. It's generating revenue. It's adhesive. And we swallow the DTX. Where's your head on where that part of the industry, the life sciences and the frenemy, what I would call a personally relationship with DTX companies is? I think it's all of the above. So it goes back to let's stop trying to say, well, will it be swallowed or not be swallowed and say, well, what is the value use case? And in, in one, maybe we're doing the swallow and we're, we're not. And that's what it comes down to. I mean, myself, if I were to go run a pharma company, I would probably be at a digital first company and the drugs would kind of follow that. Um, and I you know, have lots of ideas that I think could be pretty cool, but you can be a therapy led company and have the digital support that. And you can do a little bit of both and most likely they will. I do believe that life sciences have to play a role in scaling digital health of all kinds and shame on them if they don't, because there are many people that want to take that their place, you know, whether it be Amazon or the next startup. So they can't do nothing, but they are in the position they better than anyone else can influence payers, providers, consumers, governments and a couple of sub segments on a global scale better than anyone else. And it's been fun for me to be an advisor or a partner to them. And it's a very normal journey. They're only like five years into it. And you know they've got another 10 years before you really see it being a huge part of their business, but they can't go from zero to a hundred. So they've got to progress. Yeah. I mean, if I look back on kind of the digital health investment tracking, it's only been 10 years, right? And only may sound like a long time, but it's not for behemoths like that. I'm trying to keep with, I'll say, the existing uh, value chain of it. Um, you know, when we talk about digital therapeutics, there's companies that are going to market more consumer, getting the data and, you know, and clinical validation and coming back in. There's others that set their mind as we want to be a prescription to begin with. In all of those, there's human beings. And I'm not only talking about the patients or health consumers. Where do you see the role of, you know, obviously doctors, nurses, and in our case with your coaches, even health coaches, right? Right, in all of this spectrum? This was another aha for me that it came a couple years ago, but it wasn't 10 years ago. So it was somewhere in the middle of my personal digital health journey. And sometimes when I'm presenting, I, I have a pyramid and you know, it kind of looks like Maslow's pyramid, but it's not necessarily meant to be hierarchy. 
And this goes right back to what we just talked about is that I think it's about getting the right form of care to the right patient, in the right place at the right time. And I think there's at least four good buckets of, so face-to-face care. And this can be from a community health worker to an Uber specialist clinician. Then remote care of that same group of people, you know, going through that window. Then there's AI-driven care. So, you know, we don't necessarily need the people involved and it's delivering 24-7 and doing things that a human can't do. And I even believe, and, you know, we're building some assets that it can move towards empathy. And, you know, it's going to move to the point where it can be a human, but it's not going to replace the human. There's a time and a place for it. Then the last one is peer-to-peer support. So who's walked in my shoes and how can they not only bring empathy, but support. And, you know, I've seen people drive a hundred miles to provide some of their products to other patients that for some reason need those products. And to me, that's the pyramid of resources and they don't need to all be bundled under one solution. But if you're building a solution, it needs to fit into an ecosystem and be integrated with in a way that a patient can experience all four of those. A consistent experience for the end consumer patient. We talked about a little bit of the doctors and the human beings surrounding it. I want to touch on your recent acquisition, Avana, if I'm pronouncing that one correctly. Can we peel the onion a little? Because again, what I got out of this conversation so far, you guys are not a traditional DTX company as defined. So when I saw that announcement, that was pretty interesting. Maybe you can explain a little bit on that. This was a key piece to the puzzle of helping our vision of bringing parties together for the purpose of scale. So Avana was very focused in serving on the life sciences. I mean, I'm sorry, on the provider side of things, providing clinical decision support. They have a rules engine that's more impressive than anything we've seen embedded inside of all the major EMRs. So when a clinician's using their screen at the point of care, so this is the last mile, right? This is where decisions are actually being made in healthcare, you know, then trails in terms of which direction it goes from this point of care moment. They're able to provide recommendations to the provider. They could be safety guidelines. They could be quality practices. They could be therapy decisions. You know, here's the labs that are overdue. They could be, here's the digital tools, therapies, whatever you want to call them that, that could be available. And then with a single click, implementing all of that for the provider. So it's right there in the moment and in the workflow in a way that very familiar with. So to us, Avana had earned the trust of the providers by helping them practice better care, enabling enormous amounts of savings. And with that trust, we're able to come in and we're bringing a lot to the table that was on the amalgam side to find that synergy in a way to bring some of the things we've been doing, some of our life sciences partners together so that those two parties can work together and do stuff that hadn't been done before. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. Amalgam might be the first company I've tracked in digital health that made an acquisition announcement before it made a funding announcement. So is Amalgam bootstrapped? How could it afford to make an acquisition so early on? And could you share more about the company's financing? Brian, 
Very interesting question. You know, I miss the days, Brian, where I could read every single one of your articles. I can maybe do it with your new publication, but on your old one, I, I can't even keep up with the daily articles. So it's been really cool. Thanks for being part of uh, you know really helping establish industry. You and I have talked about that before. To answer your question, it starts with, uh, I guess, who we are as entrepreneurs and where we are in our career and our life cycle and what we've learned or not. We really believe it's not, it doesn't always have to be this way, but we believe it's awesome when a company can be self-funded. And, and so we really built and designed Amalgam to be self-funded. And it bothers at least me a little bit with how much glory is put on people raising money, right? That's not accomplishing changing the world. That's accomplishing raising money. And I think there's absolutely a time and a place, and you'll probably see us raise larger rounds of capital, but it should be purpose-driven where you really have a great use for that money, not driven out of necessity. So that's just a little bit of our philosophy. And so we have luckily been able to drive the company that way. We also believe very much, again, going back to our mission that digital health needs to scale, that it's time for roll-ups. It's time to do things like, you know, whether you're doing horizontal integration or doing vertical integration, that this is the time to be able to put pieces of the puzzle under one roof that haven't been done before. I think you're going to see us do more of that. Just even in the first two months in post-acquisition with Ivana, we're seeing some amazing synergies. So that's kind of where it came from and why we did it. And we're glad that we were able to do it. Plus picked up, you know, just a super talented team. So that's always important. And maybe I'll just chime in here. I kind of joke around that it's harder to raise money, aka revenues from customers than from VCs, right? And so I think just to tack on to a little bit of your answer is great. If you can self-fund it and raise revenues from customers and then continue moving in that direction, that's fantastic. And you can control your own destiny that way, right? Completely. Well, listen, we started with this podcast, getting to know you, Chris, and I would love to end it as always as each of these episodes with you. So we'd love to understand what gets you up in the morning and what is your why? Very simple. And I've been saying it, scale, scale, scale. Like for me, 10 years was prove that it can be done. We're past that. Now it's prove that it can scale, show what is the end to end journey for that, show all the tools and the pieces of the puzzle that need to make that happen. And don't just do it for our products, but help other people do it. So that's my motivation. And obviously the reason that we do that is to help a lot of people, not just a few people. Amazing. Well, Chris, thank you for making the time. I know it's been busy times for you and the team and looking forward to seeing where you guys go next. And while I know that not the focus on the funding rounds, let's see where that goes as well. But I am looking more for the outcomes on the individuals out there. So great tracking. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eugene. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.